a racial capitalist framework is deeply needed, both to stop economic reductionism that tries to imagine class as something separate from race, mm-hmm. but then it goes on to actually privilege the white working class. Mm-hmm. But that's another story. Um, but also the class, inserting the class piece also into our analysis of our organizations and you know what's the relationship between leadership and rank and file and how do we talk about how class differences and differences of access played out in our movements. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome everyone to this Haymarket Books live event. We're so thrilled to be here tonight with Haymarket authors Donna Murch and Barbara Ransby. I'm Anthony Arnov, an editor at Haymarket Books. I'm really privileged to welcome these two outstanding scholars, activists, organizers, and writers. Uh, Donna Murch, uh, whose book we're so thrilled uh, to be uh, launching with this live stream event is an associate professor of history at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and is the president of the New Brunswick chapter of the Rutgers AAUP, AFT. She is the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, and the book that Haymarket is launching Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. You can uh, check out the uh, chat window where there will be information about uh, these books, links to order them, and also Donna's new website, DonnaMerch.net. And she is joined this evening by Barbara Bransby, who is the John D. MacArthur Chair and Distinguished Professor in the Departments of African American Studies, Gender and Women's Studies and History at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She also directs the campus-wide social justice initiative there and works closely with Movement for Black Lives and the multiracial coalition, The Rising Majority. In 2020, Ransby was named one of the inaugural Freedom Scholars by the Marguerite Casey Foundation. Her books include Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, a classic, which I can't recommend highly enough, making all Black lives matter, and out in a brand new edition from Haymarket Books, Eslanda. Um, So really thrilled uh, that this book, which is just out from Haymarket uh, in a new edition, um, uh, is out in the world uh, and that people have the opportunity to engage with her important history and scholarship. Her website is barbaransby.com, and I'm really pleased to hand the event over now to you, Barbara. 
Thank you, Anthony. Um, this is, I, you know, I don't look forward to a lot of things because a lot of things are obligatory, you know, and you have to do them. But I was so looking forward to this conversation with my friend and colleague and comrade Donna Murch. Um, so Donna, congratulations on the book, first of all. Um, it's a, a powerful collection of essays. It is, it captures critical uh, voices and moments in the recent and not so recent past in the Black freedom struggle um, and really provokes us to think more deeply about where we are and where we're going. So um, thank you and thank you for including me in this conversation. So uh, so I want to start by, you know, start with a title, uh, which is, and I was just commenting on how lovely the cover of the book is, um, Asada taught me. This has been on t-shirts. This has been in posters. This has been a slogan. Uh, part of Asada's words have been um, sort of emblazoned into the movement. Some of the young people have it actually tattooed on their arms. Um, so uh, why this title? What, uh, what does Asada and Asada's legacy mean for you? And why is that the, the title that you wrap all of this in. And I say it because, you know, I say sometimes people know Ella Baker and Martin Luther King widely, but not deeply. And I think that's somewhat true of Asada, although not enough people even know who she is. But what does her name uh, convey on the cover of this book and in your own practice and life? Thank you so much, Barbara. And I just wanted to thank you for doing this event. I have learned so much from your power as organizer, as scholar, and as person moving through the world. So I'm just absolutely honored to be in this conversation with you. So much of that's in the book are things that I learned from convenings that you nurtured and created that were so central to the movement for Black Lives. So I just can't imagine someone I would rather celebrate this book with. So the title, um, as you said, you know, the inspiration from the title came from the Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives. I saw it in new myriad ways and names. And as a Panther historian, I was really struck by it. Um, it also has a more personal meaning, which is that I remember when I picked up my copy of Asada in 1987, I was a freshman in college. And that book was so important to me. I think it actually set me on a path for thinking about an alternate vision of what black politics was. I grew up in a very conservative part of the country in Western Pennsylvania in a Rust Belt town, went to conservative Catholic schools. And so a lot of my political coming of age happened in my late teens when I went to college. And so Asada played such a crucial role. And so that's the personal meaning of the title. It's a kind of, you know, double entendre because I'm struck that Asada has become so foundational for multiple generations. And I would set myself apart, you know, from the movement for black lives and thinking generationally, I'm coming of age at the height of Ronald Reagan, coming from a part of the country that was like the heartland for the Reagan Democrats and the Cold War. Um, and so Asada to me was signaling a kind of politics that I didn't even knew, know existed. And I'm struck that oh my goodness, it's not even 20 years later. It's almost like 25 years, 30 years later. No, it's okay. <laughs> it doesn't feel that long when you've lived it. <laughs> feels like it went by very quickly, although it is a time that feels very other to where we are today. Yeah. But to see that same power, and I think that 
My question also as a Black Panther historian was, I was struck that this current movement chose a rank and file party member. They chose someone from New York, not from the you know, homeland of the Panthers in California, and that they chose someone who was part of the dissident faction that became part of the Black Liberation Army. So in some ways, it was watching the remix of mm-hmm. Panther history. And so there was also that sense of joy of seeing her as the root of transmission that's connecting the contemporary movement to really a, a radical movement, Black Marxist movement, party-led from the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that part of Asada that they focus in on particularly, I think, you know, the fact that she survived, that, that, the, that the state tried to take her down and couldn't, you know, and that, you know, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. Uh, we must love each other and protect each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains, which you put in the, um, in the book. You know, when I hear young people reciting that mantra, you know, all that's, you know, stocked up against us, I feel I feel a bit of optimism in, in their determination. So, um, so listen, you talk about, uh, the, the book is divided into three sections and some older essays that you've written that I'm so glad to see in print again, and then some new pieces. Um, you talk about black power and black radicalism, kind of historical section, state violence and uh, the wars on crime, and then racial capitalism and black lives in the Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives, period. But you start off uh, with an essay about uh, the campus in the street and uh, the Black Panther parties organizing on Merritt College's campus. And I'm just reminded about campus organizing today that, you know, a little bit of work we're trying to do in Scholars for Social Justice, but also the other campaigns, Cops Off Campus, uh, the union organizing my uh, graduate uh, teaching colleagues are on strike today as we speak. Uh, so can you say a little bit about why you started with that um, that essay and how you see it related to campus organizing today? And if I may, I was really happy to re- be reminded that that essay was published in Souls, which is, of course, the journal that I've edited since Manny Marable's passing. But, um, you know, it has such a long and rich history. I was just so proud that you were in it and um, chose that essay. Thank you so much for that. And Souls played an important role. That was the first article I published that before I published Living for the City. And it was really, you know, there are pieces that you write that by writing them, you work out the core questions of a book. And that essay provided that occasion. I started there because in many ways, it's my point of reference. So I'm born in the late 60s by parents who were in their own ways involved in the movement. And that helped place how I understand what happens after. So I think the enormous accomplishment and possibility of the 1960s and 1970s movements, although I'm reminded by something, my mother was a really, really brilliant woman and self-taught. And what she would always say to me, Donna, is that people talk about the 1960s, but they never remember how painful and difficult it was. Mm. She was also reminding me of the cost. Mm. But to start with the story of Genesis, the creation of this incredible movement that did not come from the centers of power. It came from a relatively small city on the West Coast with a recent Black population, Mm. and that the people who led it were the children of 
largely people from the rural South who had migrated with five or six years of education arrive in the Bay Area and their children born in the South coming of age in California who have actually a very difficult time confronting segregation in schools. Huey Newton described his his, um, experience in the Oakland Public Schools as being as violent as anything that he encountered from the police. But nevertheless, the catalytic point of their organizing came out of public higher education. So at that time in California, anyone who had a high school equivalency or a high school diploma had the right to attend higher education. So what happens when a resource, a state resource that has really been limited to a very small percentage of the population, what happens when it opens up? And that is what happened at Merritt College. They bring all of the history and memory and also anger and dissatisfaction, and they channel it and organize on campus. And that fight to transform their community college becomes core to the organization they form when they leave the campus and they go into the street. And I care about that history deeply. I think it's one of the reasons I've ultimately gone into a union to fight for public higher education, because one of my biggest sources of frustration, and it has to do with the race and class politics of the United States, that we take a tiny percentage of people and we use them as representative. Why is Brown University the representative college, right? The majority of people are living at home and attending two-year schools or four-year schools. And that community college that was the incubator for all these new ideas, not coming from the most elite private schools. And I'll just say in Asada and her autobiography, her discussion about Manhattan Community College and the organizing that went on there, you have a similar story in Los Angeles uh, City College that a lot of the brilliance and new ideas that become important in the movement are incubated by working class students who are the first ones, some of them the first ones to attend high school, because many of the southern cities didn't have high schools. So it's in that possibility of what higher education could be and what happens when people who have been denied get access to it. That's a real sense of joy for me. And it's kind of been a foundational one that's shaped how I've even moved through my career. I went to a public university at Berkeley and then I've taught at Rutgers State University of New Jersey for my whole career. So that's meaningful to me. Um, In terms of the campus movement, I think that we have this really important writing by DeVarian Baldwin and others talking about essentially how the university has become a corporation. And it's a not-for-profit corporation, but has taken on this corporate extractive relationship. And that's true, unfortunately, of many public universities as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have this precedent of a counter history, because I think the public university should be understood through the prism of the welfare state. And that includes graduate school, that we all have a right to education and we need to fight to open it up, to fund it and to make it free. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the lens. I do think we are in a critical juncture. It's why I went into the union organizing at Rutgers, where you know seven hundred thousand higher workers, seven hundred thousand workers of all different job categories in higher education have lost their jobs, and in this period of time, since the pandemic started, wow, seven hundred thousand, wow, yes, and at Rutgers, and I think it's true of many universities, so many of our workers inside the university are black and brown, low wage. And we're watching the 
stripping of their union status and then the hiring of them as subcontractors. Mm -hmm. So at Rutgers, I've been part of this movement where we're functioning as an industrial union and we're coordinating all our contracts through all the different unions. So Mm -hmm. custodial working together with the administrative staff and the uh, adjunct teaching faculty working together with the tenured faculty and grads. So I think we need to fight for our public universities, but really for our public infrastructure, K through 12, as well as, you know, we're seeing a time when libraries are being sold off and high school buildings are being sold off for real estate. So I'd like to think about not only the problems of higher education, but its historical possibilities and centrality to the Black radical movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, as a site of struggle. And today, you know, there's a lot of youth organizing going on in communities, uh, but but even on campuses, you know, the Cops Off Campus movement at U of C and UCLA and other places, the the strikes that I mentioned of graduate, you know, hyper exploited graduate workers, um, the attacks on critical race theory and on scholars who speak out against uh, in support of Palestine. Um, all of this is is a part of the mix and, and continues to make uh, campuses battlegrounds. But as you say, sometimes the, the, the way that we focus our our attention is not where the, the real struggles are happening. And I'm so glad that you held up uh, Devarian's book because it talks about other, you know, the, the, there's a struggle in the classroom, there's a struggle about hiring and admissions and all that. But the role that universities play as almost corporate actors in cities and communities, um, the full title of that book, of course, in the shadow of Ivory Tower, how universities are plundering our cities. Um, it really calls us, you know, to, to talk about the neoliberal university um, in all the all the layers uh, of that. So, um, so I wanted, you know, I just uh, I just finished the book this morning, so it's still all fresh um, and good. Uh, and you have a chapter called "Who's to Blame for Targeted Mass Incarceration." You take on this um, Michael Fortner's book, "Silent Majority," and an essay you wrote, you know, a little while ago. But then you go on to talk about the complicity of certain black elected officials. And one of the things I've, you know, we've both written about and I think, you know, understand, but it bears repeating is, you know, blackness is not a monolith. And at this juncture, particularly, there are black elites uh, in inside and outside the Democratic Party, let me just say, uh, inside and outside academia and corporate uh, who are complicit and, and who really collaborate in the project of racial capitalism in a myriad of ways. The war on drugs was one of those ways. Fortner tries to blame black working class folks and you kind of flip the script and say, let's let's look at the role of Tom Brady and uh, Bradley, I'm sorry, and others. Um, so say a little bit more about that, about that chapter, who's to blame for targeted mass incarceration. And you can also remind people why you say targeted mass incarceration as opposed to just mass incarceration. Yes. So I'll start with the targeted incarceration. Many of the carceral state scholars uh, and people who study state violence use targeted incarceration because the disproportionate incarceration of non-white populations goes back to the period prior even to the United States' foundation. So this racialized incarceration has always been a part of the history. And when we talk about mass incarceration, it's so the disparities based on race are so overwhelming. So it's it's large numbers of people, unprecedented in terms of the large numbers of all people being put in prison. But when you look at it through a racial lens, it is, I think, 
if I remember the stats correctly, I think uh, for a male population, it's 16 times that black men are 16 times more likely to be incarcerated. For black women, they have much higher rates of incarceration than white women. So I think that piece is important. This piece, it's interesting. I, I debated about whether or not to include this piece because in many ways, it was a political intervention. It's a review of a book, but I wrote it because I was very concerned at the moment in which it was written. So both about its scholarly merits, but also its meaning in the larger world. So Michael Fortner is a political scientist. He used to be at City College. And he wrote this book called The Black Silent Majority. And it was an argument that Black people in New York were the primary force for the passage of the Rockefeller drug laws. It was being made at almost the height. I think I think it's before, if I remember correctly, I think maybe it's 2015. It's before the election of Trump, where Ferguson has happened the year before. The movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, has become this huge uh, phenomena that the corporate media is trying to reckon with. And his book and his arguments were being taken up in the corporate press. I think he had a total of five articles in the New York Times. He There was a big feature that was done in the New Yorker. And even the Marshall Project uh, had a feature. And it was almost a kind of new common sense. And I was very concerned about this. And I'll talk about the problems with how the argument is made and the evidence that's used. But to me, it reminded me of what happened in my youth was with William Julius Wilson, who was a sociologist who wrote a book called The Declining Significance of Race. And it's a, you know, a social scientific book that became common sense, not unlike the work of Charles Murray at precisely the moment when affirmative action is being dismantled, it is being challenged after the Bakke decision, and this challenging not only in the universities, but also in public contracting, you had a scholar who was kind of raised up to rearticulate common sense that would justify a shift in policy. And so that's why I wrote this piece. Um, in thinking about how it's in dialogue with an essay later in the book on crack in Los Angeles, is that because we are historians, you know, the t- period, time period when things happen really matters. And for Fortner, he argues that the evidence that he uses to say that Black people are the primarily primary force behind the Rockefeller drug laws is he uses a group of five ministers who became part of the public face that Rockefeller essentially went on a tour around New York and other parts of the country talking about the Rockefeller drug laws and using it really to, he wanted to become president. And he's competing with Ronald Reagan out in California. And Fortner really plays this down and says people have overemphasized the nature of the Republican Party and the tension between two different visions of a liberal Rockefeller Republicanism versus Ronald Reagan in California. And he says instead that it's really his close relationships with the ministers. And he has to make this argument because only one of the state legis- black state legislatures supported the Rockefeller drug laws. Uh, Black politicians, he's a political scientist, were overwhelmingly opposed to it. And of course, this is New York of the late 1960s and early 1970s of Attica, in the aftermath of the assassination of Malcolm X. So in order to make this argument, he has to repudiate the importance of Attica, the support for Malcolm X, and to really relitigate Black sensibilities. And he does this really through attacking and red-baiting leftists. And yeah. saying that they don't take black crime victims seriously. 
he also interestingly enough does cite Charles Murray. Mm-hmm. So I'm I think that I'm someone who cares about history deeply as scholarship, but I also think history matters in contemporary politics. Now to contrast that with my piece. In the 1980s, you're in a very different moment. And I think one of the devastating things for writing about this, for people writing in about it, even more so the activists who live through it, is the scale of violent backlash against the successes of these post-war social movements. So it is in this period that we see the real takeoff of mass incarceration, which we can talk about some more. And we see an assault essentially on a lot of the economic basis of what people were fighting about. So the expansion of the welfare state to have actually multiracial population benefit from the welfare state. That was one of the great victories, you know, the welfare rights movements and, you know, the civil rights and black power organizing. And it's in the 80s and the 70s and 80s that we begin to see these things being taken away. So I think that in terms of the signing on of black politicians to law and order and the war on drugs, it does happen in the 1980s. So my argument is not that it doesn't categorically happen, but it happens in a later period. And I think I'm writing a larger book on crack in Los Angeles and trying to fully understand why this happened in the way that it did. I think there is a very important class fracture in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has one of the biggest class disparities intraracially among the black community. And it's also the problem that people are experiencing a public health crisis with no other policy responses except punishment. So in that sense, also, you know, the attempt to talk about the silent, a black silent majority, because the core concept of the silent majority was, of course, the white voters elect, elected Richard Nixon. Unfortunately, what we know from the rich scholarship of Elizabeth Hinton, Naomi Murkawa, and others is that liberalism, there was both liberalism and bipartisan signing on to law and order politics. Mm-hmm. And so as Black people are gaining more power in representation electoral politics, this is the period where we're seeing the institutionalization and expansion of law and order and incarceration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a revival today with the current mayor of New York City being, uh, you know, <laughs> promising more cops, more cops, more cops, you know, true to true to his background. Um, so there are people like, you know, L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley and a number of black politicians who, who kind of co-sign this move toward the war on drugs and neoliberal policies in general. And then there's the Clintons who deserve their own special little place somewhere. Um, <laughs> and in your book, you, you have a chapter that talks about, and I think it was, in, it, was, it was something that was published in a collection called Faux Feminism. Um, and I think that's really important, especially since we talk about the leadership of Black radical feminists in the current phase of the Black freedom movement. The, uh, we, we juxtapose that tradition and that leadership with the Hillary Clintons of the world. And uh, you, you, you talk a little bit about uh, Bill Clinton's participation in the war on drugs and, and uh, attack on welfare and also Hillary Clinton. So say a little bit about the Clintons since, you know, they represent a certain face and faction of the Democratic establishment. Yes. So the kind of starting point for that essay was an intervention by BLM Boston. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was amazing. So Hillary Clinton was trying, she was claiming essentially her history as first lady as part of the important qualifications of becoming president. So trying to claim that role. Um, and essentially she was challenged uh, by Danya Yancey, and s- who says, essentially, what about your responsibility for mass incarceration? What about you and your family's role? And it was this wonderful moment where she took the language of personal responsibility, that you know, language that had been used by the Democratic Leadership Council and used by both political parties to always uh, blame people for economic inequality, for poverty or incarceration. So she actually uses it against uh, Hillary Clinton as presidential candidate and as former first lady. And so I take that as my jumping off point, again, you know, influenced by all the brilliance of this movement, which has helped us also interpret our recent past differently. It's been important to going back and reassessing, especially the last 50 years. Um, The Clintons are important because it's under them that you have the single biggest expansion of the numbers of people being incarcerated at the federal. And and also one of the interventions of that piece is to think about the Democratic Leadership Council, which is very important to the moving right of the Democratic Party. And people have talked about it in terms of neoliberalism and the dismantling of the welfare state. Uh, But I situate it also in thinking about their own use of purchase of law and order politics. And I think one of the very important PR moves that Bill Clinton made is that just before the New Hampshire primary, he flies back to Arkansas. He's governor of Arkansas to preside over the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, a man with such serious brain damage, black man who said, prior to his execution, that he was going to save his dessert for the next day and that he hoped to to vote for Bill Clinton in the fall. So that, again, that symbolic power of punishment. And that, I think, is so important. It wasn't only a genealogy from Richard Nixon through Ronald Reagan Mm -hmm. through Trump. That is this bipartisan consensus and that it's actually under a Democrat that we're seeing the single biggest expansion of this punitive turn and law and order politics. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives by Donna Murch. Drawing its title from one of America's foremost revolutionaries, This collection of thought-provoking essays by award-winning Black Panther Party scholar Donna Murch explores how social protest is challenging our current system of state violence and mass incarceration, exploring how a youth-led political movement has emerged in recent years to challenge the bipartisan consensus on punishment and looking to the future through a redistributive queer and feminist lens. As Kianga Yamada-Taylor puts it, Donna Murch is one of the sharpest, most incisive, and elegant writers on racism, radicalism, and struggle today. This is a smart and sophisticated book that should be read and studied by everyone in search of answers to the profound crises that continue to confront this country. Find Asada Taught Me at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a... Um 
I mean, a case that was just, you know, so galling and so outrageous and so callous that, that he would, you know, make a point to go and witness the execution, right? So, um, so I want to, you know, there's, there's these three sections of the book, and I want to kind of... Uh, go toward the, the latter section where you talk about Ferguson and you talk about the movement for black lives. This is all very fresh and we're, we're still all sorting it out. Um, but uh, in, in that chapter, you, you write the highly politicized urban uprisings of 1960s are Ferguson's direct lineal antecedents. You're talking about Watts and my hometown of Detroit and uh, other places. So say more about that and other, you know, aspects of that genealogy of resistance that, uh, that we can trace back before Ferguson. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, my family is from St. Louis and my entire extended family lives in St. Louis. So immediately when Ferguson popped off, I was living in Los Angeles researching my book on the drug war. I immediately flew back to witness it. And, I did that for political reasons, but also really personal reasons. You know, we are many generations in St. Louis. And once upon a time, I thought about writing a dissertation on St. Louis. And 30 years ago, I decided not to because I found its history too painful and too close. Mm -hmm. And I ended up writing about the Panthers because I really wanted to tell a story of change and movement. And I don't see that. In, I did not see that in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So when Ferguson happened, I was really, really excited. And so in that, in that section of the essay, it's in Ferguson's Inheritance, it's about witnessing this kind of protest and property destruction and, and the really also the importance of this kind of politics of mass mobilization and property destruction. I think that actually has to be named Mm -hmm. because the United States is such a violent country that Mm -hmm. even though it always celebrates nonviolence, I actually think it's in various acts of destruction that they carry a weight and a power politically that's really important. So it is, of course, in the 1960s that with the urban rebellions that stretch really from about 1963 through the early 70s all over the country in big cities and small, as we also know from Elizabeth Hinton's new book, that we saw a huge expansion of funding of the cities, the creation yeah. of new department of um, housing and urban, you know, urban education, and that this is a response to mass protest and also really a taking on a confrontational form of politics that entails large numbers of people. And the thing I was struck by also is that the first two big places that that jumped off were Ferguson and St. Louis and then Baltimore. And these are cities in the Upper South that are also Rust Belt cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, St. Louis is a deeply, deeply cash poor place. Mm -hmm. And a real, I also grew up in the Rust Belt. And it's a place where you also have a lot of stratification uh, within the black community, but deep, deep urban disinvestment. So that's where I saw the connection is because I think that there are different aspects of the movement for black lives. I think writing the collective history of protest and the people who participated in it, but then the organized forms that help channel that mass protest. So it's in that sense, I was thinking about its direct lineal descendants. Mm-hmm. But so much of what I know about the deeper history of organizing and the importance of Black feminist 
organizing and the creation of queer spaces and queer consciousness raising actually comes from you, Barbara. So I would love to hear more about that. I witnessed it attending the gatherings that you were sponsoring uh, at University of Illinois in Chicago and that we're bringing together and kind of, I think in the book, I call it the work of quilting. And I wanted to also name that because both you and Kathy Cohen, I think, have played such an important role in providing how do we turn our universities into platforms for organizing? Mm. We need some of that history. And I'll just say, like many of the other powerful organizers I know, it's true also of some of our union leaders at Rutgers, they really don't name that because what's most important is the work that's being done. But I think it is important to name it because we need people to do that work of figuring out how do we take the resources of the university in order to support movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, two things. One is the convening uh, role. I mean, I feel public universities, you know, have a have a line about serving the public good. And we see all kinds of, you know, collaboration and facilitation with drug companies and corporate uh, uh, sponsors, et cetera, for scholarships and all kinds of things and for research and, and, and patent negotiations with uh, military contract. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that university cl- collaborates with for profit um, industries. If we are in service to community, it is fully a part of uh, what we ought to be doing as faculty and public institutions is partnering with people trying to change the world and improve their communities. And so um, so 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 I think that's the case to be made for doing it on the rubric of the university. But as you know, I'm also a strong advocate for our own practice outside of university spaces. Right. So that we don't have to answer to anybody. It's not our job. It's our passion uh, and our commitment. So um, so I think we have to wear different hats and and and, you know, serve our people in different ways, um, uh, depending on what space we're in. But I also, you know, what you're referring to about the feminist pieces, of course, you know, when I'm writing about making in making all black lives matter, I interviewed a lot of young women in Ferguson and elsewhere. And of course, you know, people in Movement for Black Lives. Um, And they were unequivocal feminists. They were feminists. They had an intersectional frame. They had uh, 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 an orientation toward the writings of Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore and the Combahee River Collective and Bell Hooks. And, you know, so it it was through a feminist frame and an internationalist frame and an anti-capitalist frame that they did this work. Not all of them and not, you know, in the same way. I'm not trying to, you know, make it all sound perfect and, and, and smooth and even, but, you know, you hold up the Dream Defenders and Black Youth Project 100. Black Youth Project 100, of course, says they operate through a Black queer feminist frame. That is if I have to say Kathy Cohen's influence directly, you know, she would, she would downplay that. Uh, uh, But, but we see it, it's palpable and people gravitate to it. And to say it's her influence and I, she didn't mold anybody. It made sense to them. And they're like, yeah, we will work with you on this. So it was an articulation that resonated. It wasn't imposed. And, you know, that's very much the, um, I think the ideological force driving a lot of this work, dream defenders, of course, is another um, another good example, which kind of segues us into the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, 
I, I, I like this question, you know, this sort of host questioning role, you know, so you, you have all the hard answers and I can ask some questions, <laughs> but um, which is um, about the carceral state. And sometimes, you know, we talk about the carceral state, the surveillance state, et cetera. These are all capitalist states and you are pretty clear and consistent and everyone is not um, about the importance of naming racial capitalism in our diagnosis of, of what we're up against. And so say a little bit about how we understand the carceral state as a governing institution within racial capitalism. Why is it important for us to understand that framing in our analysis? Yes. Well, I think that, you know, I think about when we started using this term. And for me, it started maybe in 2008, 2009. And there was a convening that we had at Rutgers, a conference I organized after I published Living for the City. And we wanted to do something on mass incarceration. And this was just before Heather Thompson's piece on why mass incarceration matters was published. And we brought together all these different scholars and historians who were doing research on this. We actually sat in a circle and had a debate about what to call this. And the people, uh, the side that, I was part of the side that wanted to use the term carceral state. And the reason was that we were trying to find a language and an analytic frame for talking not only about policing and prisons, we wanted a way in which we can talk more broadly. And I think now this is just taken as a given, but these were all new ideas that, you know, we were talking about and developing and thinking about their, you know, how they fit in also with historical practice. Um, and it was a way to think about how carceral, carceral descended from the Latin for prison, how it had, how deeply implicated it was in child services and welfare programs and the establishment of surveillance practices on welfare cheating, that we really wanted to talk about it rather than having simply the division between a redistributive state versus a punishment state, that these carceral practices were deeply implicated also in things like public education. So these are services, we care about the welfare state, we think that the state should have to do things for people. But unfortunately, that the growing strength, and this is not new to the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, the incarceration of black children, you know, in, the, in New York in the 1930s, many uh, children without families are actually put in jails in New York City because they don't have a child welfare system right. that serves black children, that they were segregated. So these are not new phenomena, but we were trying just to think about why this has intensified so deeply in the last 50 years. So that's why the term carceral state, it's a fungible term that allows us to talk about many different parts of the state that are not simply policing and prisons. And I think now that just seems obvious. Everyone would say, of course, mm -hmm. but we're still trying to shift the narrative to talk about this because it was actually very difficult to do research on policing and prisons and the carceral state. Khalil Mohammed, who wrote his dissertation that became the condemnation of blackness, had a real struggle. And when I was in graduate school, there was almost no one who was doing this work inside history. Much of it was written about in sociology and the social sciences. But historians, this, this was largely left out of our history. I was reading a Reagan biography uh, by Lou Cannon a few years ago. It has one mention in a giant 800 
page biography of Ronald Reagan has one mention of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that there was an interesting parallel movement going on inside the university and inside. I was privy to the one in the university. I think it was going on in many different organizing circles that as these ideas kind of trickled to the, they, I guess I'm using a mixed metaphor to say they trickled to the fore, but they moved to the fore Mm -hmm. and to, I think through largely through activists and political organizing, it began to influence the lenses that people talked about and wrote about it. But one of the great violences, I think, of carceral state, law and order, punitive turn, whatever you want to call it, and I lived through it, was that it had such a association through ideas of deviance and criminalization that was really focused on the people themselves. So even to be able to back up and look at the structures that were involved in it was was not done by many people. And it's actually quite recent. And I think this is also one of the enormous accomplishments of the movement for Black Lives, which is that it's very hard to organize against something if you don't understand that it exists. So even being able to identify it in a country that's so punishment-driven, there was so much hegemony around punishment in the carceral state that even identifying what it was took time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that naming is important, you know. Uh, I'm, you know, as you were talking, I thought about a couple of things. One is, of course, Dorothy Roberts' new book, Torn Apart, which talks about the carceral logics that uh, inform the child welfare system, um, torn apart how the child welfare system destroys black families. Um, so carceral logics penetrate so many institutions. The other thing I want to raise just kind of historically is um, targeted mass incarceration was not always the preferred form of rule, right? So there's always been police and there's always been policing and there's always been the threat of state violence. That shows up in a lot of different ways, state violence and vigilante violence. Um, When black labor was more essential, I'm always reminded of, you know, it it was less likely to be contained and warehoused in prisons, uh, but exploited and policed in a different way. Um, General Baker tells a story in a um, film. My my sister-in-law did a film on Detroit called um, Detroit 48202. (laughs) Uh, And um, it's about a postal worker in Detroit. And then she interviews, you know, his people on his route and also the movements that surrounded the evolution of Detroit and so forth. But uh, General Baker talks about the 67 rebellion and the ways in which people who had to go back into the factory were, were waved through the police lines, you know? And so there's a way in which there are moments when in service to the interests of capital, there's a different kind of control of black labor that doesn't focus on warehousing people in in prison. It's it's brutal, it's exploitative, uh, but it's different. And so I, I really think that's also an important layer for us to talk about the historical nature of um, uh, of, um, of the carceral state. Um, so let me let me ask you another uh, couple of questions and then I think we'll see if the audience, the listeners have any uh, questions they might be waiting to ask you where I'm enjoying just you know, hearing your thoughts about all these things. I always appreciate that you, um, you're never talking about these ideas in ivory tower 
terms or in la la land. It's always like, like, what does this really mean for us? And what does this mean for freedom movement? And, and that's always so nourishing. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about gender and, um, you mentioned gender throughout uh, the, the the book in different places. And then, of course, you know, in the end, and we've been talking about the feminist leadership of uh, the movement for black lives, the Say Her Name campaign, which was both uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's African-American policy um, initiative or institute, as well as BYP 100 did a grassroots campaign under the same rubric. Um, black feminists have been really in the forefront of this movement and insisted upon identifying victims of state and police violence in, you know, that are, that are women and femmes because we, we get such a male profile of that. Can you just say a little bit about the gender politics in the movement for black lives, uh, campaigns? Yeah. Um, well, this is a movement staffed and led by women and women of all kinds, you know, trans women, cis women. I think it was really striking to me in, and it was true also in Ferguson, because I do think there were differences between the mass protest and then thinking about the organizational response. Yeah. And I was aware, I mentioned that because the geography to me really mattered. And I was thinking how, and it relates to this question of infrastructure, where do you get the infrastructure for a movement? And I think, uh, you know, having left where I grew up and then having spent the most of my life in New York or California, it's radically different where I grew up. And I felt that there wasn't the same infrastructure in some of the places in Baltimore and in St. Louis to initially, you know, knit this together. So that's becoming part of a national movement, connecting those geographies, I think is important. But it was true also in the protests that I saw in Ferguson. And there was a joy in seeing how important women were in leading this was one woman in particular, I remember I interviewed her and she'd been incarcerated in the 1990s. And she was one of the people that was on the picket line every single day for over a year. And she gave me this whole explanation about how she and her daughter, all the things that they did in order to live their lives, work at their jobs, and also stand in front of the police station and protest. Because that's really important. Ferguson didn't just happen. The reason it became sustained is that it didn't stop. It went on for almost two years. And so it was striking to see that and to see also people coming out, talking about having been incarcerated. Um, in the organizing spaces, it's just, it is, it is a Black woman-led movement. And in fact, one of the things it made me think about are all movements, are all, so many of our Black radical movements, Black women-led movements. And it made me think about the Panther Party. One of the big differences is that the leadership is all female. Whereas the dynamic that I saw in the Panther Party is that women were sustaining. And Bobby Seale says that after 1968, they were the majority of the Black Panther Party. We have a period from 1974 to 1977 where Elaine Brown is the head of the party. But the core organization and leadership was women. But the thing that struck me with the movement for Black Lives is that it was women's power at every level. They were both the rank and file and they were the leadership. And I think that is a striking difference. The explicit meditation on a, a queer feminist lens and queer black feminist lens. I came yeah. of age, I didn't mention this, but in addition to reading Asada, coming of age in the 1980s, I was deeply influenced by Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and other black feminists. And I do think that 
the organizing tradition and the scholarship mattered. And you can see, I didn't see it as a direct line, but all that incubation of ideas and organizing has been so important to the development for the movement for Black Lives. But I think not unlike the carceral state, this period has it has necessitated that I think we go back and we look at some of the earlier movements differently. Mm-hmm. I've been about that a lot from seeing this, the power and importance of women that I think that there's a difference in terms of who the leaders are, but I also think that in order to fully tell the history, we need to use different lenses mm-hmm. about how, how to, how to identify that and how to talk about the longer continuities of, Black women's organizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, some of the questions I was going to ask you, you have, you know, um, answered already. Um, and there are people in the uh, in the chat who are who are asking really good questions that I should have thought of. But, um, you know, one thing I think that we are all still processing and you do write about this in the book is the 2020 uprising in the wake of George Floyd's um, murder in Minneapolis. And I think you interviewed some of my buddies, you know, Candace Montgomery and others in the, um, in, in Minneapolis who were involved in the, the, the struggle afterwards and before. Um, but what, what is, what, what do you read? What is the significance? The largest protest uh, in history, millions of people in the middle of a deadly pandemic hit the streets um, after this vicious murder goes viral on social media, a uh, young, young woman, you know, captures it on her cell phone and it becomes this pivotal spark that ignites protests um, around the country and around the world. Um, how, what are you thinking about that, you know, a couple years later? We're now coming up on the second year. You know, so much has happened over the past two years. Yeah trying to inhabit the space that I felt as I was, because I, I had pre-existing conditions. So unfortunately, all I could do was like watch things on social media and look out the window. Normally, that's, you know, what I've done for years and years is I'm someone who just likes to go and be a part and to take part and to protest, but also to be present and to organize. So this was the first time I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. In that sense, I always, I feel like I have a kind of limited lens because it was all received in media. But there's so many things going on with those protests. The first thing is just the sheer accomplishment of the movement for Black Lives and transforming a lens and creating a platform and mode of organization that people could respond to the killing of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So this is where I felt like the shifting of common sense and creating creating a way for people to talk about a series of problems inside the United States. Mm-hmm. Because it is about police killings, but it's also about targeted and mass incarceration. There's a racial capitalist piece that I think that just the, the suffering that's going on inside the U.S., the extreme downward mobility, the increase in the decrease in life expectancy. I think that the movement for Black Lives has a, a potential breath to it, that those 26 million people that went out, I think there are varying motivations in different groups that were involved. The thing that people commented on that I do think is noteworthy is how many of these protests took place in overwhelmingly white counties and huge amounts of white participation. 
So I think that the Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives also provided a lens to think about how to knit together broad-based coalitions. I think there are other things also going on. I think it mattered that it was a pandemic, that the pandemic was, it, it kept people like me and older people from attending. One thing I was really struck by, at least in Philadelphia, was that there were a lot of it was overwhelmingly young people who were involved in this. And there were older people going, but it was very much youth played a crucial role in this. Mm-hmm. I was about what was going on in Portland and the West Coast. And you had some of the longstanding anarchist formations and people that descended even back from 1999 for the battle for Seattle, that there's a way in which I think abolition and the movement for Black lives has increasingly become the linga franca and the organizing lens for the left right now. We had a big fight in our union about what, how we were going to talk about this and, you know, how, what our relationship is to defunding the police and abolition of the police. But this has become in a really profound way, I think a core organizing frame, not only for the black left, but for the U S. Yeah. So this is an important shift. Yeah. And, and a struggle within the left. Uh, we don't have to name names, but, you know, folks who still want a kind of, I, I would argue, reductionist colorblind class analysis of things um, in, in the face of a major black working class uprising in Ferguson and Baltimore and elsewhere, and then a multiracial uh, uprising kind of following that lead. And just as a disclaimer, Movement for Black Lives has offered a really important narrative and a consistent um, kind of example of speaking truth to power, uh, offering avenues for, for young people to get involved and so forth. But a lot of this was people in their own community self-organizing uh, in for BL, certainly not and, and BLM were not in these spaces on the ground with organizers organized. So, you know, we have to, you know, with humility kind of acknowledge that, too, which is. You know, which is a statement. I mean, I actually find it a, a hopeful statement that people with no political or organizing experience stepped up and into that moment and said, this is enough, not in my name. Um, you know, the other kinds of things that people say when they have that kind of coming to themselves moment. Um, and I think you're right. Being in the pandemic and the surreal nature, the the intense nature of a kind of reflective moment nationally and internationally um, led people to the streets as much as the, 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 the murder did. Uh, I add something to that, too. Of course. I also think that the depth of crisis of what was going on with Donald Trump, of this ra- racial fascism. Yes. That's the term that I like to use. Yeah. Like trying to redefine. Recently, I had a book talk and I was talking about Black Reconstruction. I was going back and having reread it. And I reread it at different times in my life. And one of the things I was struck by is how Du Bois talks about the late 1860s and redemption. And he actually uses the language of fascism. Mm -hmm. And so redrawing the trajectory of fascism and decentering Europe in the interwar years and going back and talking about, you know, this white counter-revolution as a direct line for fascism. Mm-hmm. So I think that too, you know, I, that's why the kind of intellectual and conceptual work, I guess that's what I mean when I said the organizing framework, that people, it gave voice to a way, a kind of, it is a new lens for politics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that 
you know, I was thinking about Cedric Robinson, and I think like a racial capitalist framework is deeply needed, both to stop economic reductionism that tries to imagine class as something separate from race, mm-hmm. but then it goes on to actually privilege the white working class. Mm-hmm. But that's another story. Um, but also the class, inserting the class piece also into our analysis of our organizations and, you know, what's the relationship between leadership and rank and file and how do we talk about how class differences and differences of access played out in our movements. Mm-hmm. But that crisis, I, I remember being in my apartment and watching these protests and just feeling like Trump was a intensification of a form of politics that is obviously much larger than Trump the man and Trumpism. But I think that that also played away. It was an it was a profoundly anti-racist framework for being able to articulate uh, an opposition, especially in that moment. There's a way that things are really bad right now, but I know that many of us just felt that it was cataclysmic for a while there. Mm-hmm. And the protest gave voice to that. Yeah. And sadly, the Trump period is not over. The Trumpism. And when I say Trump period, I don't mean just him. I mean what he galvanized, you know, that that these white nationalist forces have continued to organize. Um, and so both in the electoral arena and in the streets, I think the the fight against those forces that that want such a grim and dangerous future uh, for us is not over. Um, another question from the from the from the audience. Can you talk about the current discourse about crime and policing and the parallels and differences you see with the war on drugs and gangs that you write about and Asada taught me? Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, to be honest, it's been really a tough period right now. Um, I think that what's happening right now is as strong evidence as I've ever seen that reform does not work. We need a transformation of structures. You know, when the police, when they have arrest rates and incarceration rates that are surging, they ask for more money. When they have declining numbers, they ask for more money. And what we're seeing now is this vast increase again in funding and a real vilification of the these 26 million people in this mass protest that there are multiple things going on. The first thing is just that we're witnessing how undemocratic the United States is, and it's really painful. There's the lack of democracy in terms of the rewriting of the election rules, which is happening, you know, with 19 states having the power now to throw out the actual ballots and determine the outcome of presidential elections. But also it's the narrowness of the two-party system where Joe Biden and the Democratic Party are really vilifying and attacking people for having demanded the defunding of police. And I think that one of the things I talk about in the SADA is that there's good evidence that the places that had these vibrant protests and organizing had larger amounts of democratic turnout. People have to feel that there's, especially young people, that there's a form of politics that they can vote for that connects with them. And, you know, the corporate neoliberal democratic party, I say it like that just because I have to abbreviate it in time, but you know, we're seeing once again, this coming together across bipartisan lines to raise up the police and give them more money. So it's a very frightening time. And 
you know, I try to think about, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Right? I try to take my fear and channel it into struggle. But we are in a really, really difficult time. It's also dealing with some of the complexity of the extreme wealth disparities in the United States, the depth of marginalization of whole sectors of the population from legal paid employment. You know, 20% of Philadelphia makes under $13,000 a year. So the pandemic has just been devastating for vulnerable populations. Because as I was as I was inside during the pandemic, I kept thinking about domestic workers, informal economy, the depth of what happened to people economically during the pandemic is also very important. And one of the things I'm struck by is that there's no there's almost no discussion in the corporate media about the relationship even between economics and so-called crime. So this is a place where racial capitalist analysis and Philadelphia were having an enormous surge and carjackings and the question of survival economy, how are people supposed to survive, I think is really important. And I would like to see more bringing back together these questions of capitalism, racial capitalism. And, you know, I fear that we are going to see once again, the great redux of law and order. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I fear that too. Of course, you know, that is very profound here in Chicago, you know, lots of, you know, carjackings and other kinds of uh, things going on that are fueling this call for more cops and including from some black uh, politicians and preachers. Uh, but I, I think, you know, our analysis has to be one that um, is both humble, humble and ambitious at the same time. Like we, you know, Abolition doesn't just mean to abolish. It actually also means to create and to build. Um, And so, you know, people ask legitimate questions. How can we be safe? We haven't recreated our communities and our uh, ourselves in ways that we can function in a different way. And we have this, you know, power, forces of power breathing down our throats, you know, and breathing down our backs all the time. So, you know, I think we are in this kind of period of transition and uncertainty and precarity on so many levels. And we have to talk about it honestly, you know, uh, Cabral's, you know, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. We, we are in a difficult um, place and we have uh, no choice but to struggle and to fight, but we also have to acknowledge kind of what we're up against. Another question that takes us further afield, uh, we've talked about Philly and Chicago and St. Louis, um, but my dear friend, longtime freedom fighter, uh, Bernadine Dorn, asked the question, you know, can we can we stretch this to the international? You know, how do we contextualize, you know, what's happening in the U.S. in this moment with what's happening um, in the world? Uh, any thoughts on that? And, and we can talk about I mean, I think her question more specifically was the reach of uh, Infra-BL um, a, as a movement. The reach for the reach of M for BL as a movement uh, transnationally. Mm. And I can say something about that if you want. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you say that? And then I will. Yeah. I mean, we probably say the same thing, you know, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, one of the things that I, it, it impressed me. I'm so hopeful about with uh, movement for black lives. And this is reflected in the, uh, 
2016 document, um, Vision for Black Lives, is the internationalism for which they have taken flack. Uh, they took a, a strong um, position in support of Palestinian self-determination for which they took you know, some serious hits. And uh, they have reached out and built ties with the Landless People's Movement in Brazil, with uh, the Fismas Fall Movement in South Africa, uh, been in touch with with folks in Haiti. So really trying to have an internationalist view very much in the spirit of the Panthers and, um, you know, the, the later years of SNCC and so forth, but that the movement has received support from all over the world and has in turn looked out to see what lessons, um, you know, can be learned, you know, from the world. And we, we really, you know, we're not going to solve any of these problems within the borders of a single country, although we have to at the same time organize where we are. So transnational solidarity, international solidarity has to be the anchor, I think, of any movement. I see it in this movement, but it's challenging in these times, too, um, because we have the Bolsonaro's of the world and the Duterte's um, and the Erdogan's, you know, with their own versions of Trumpism uh, in those countries, those dictators. So it's both of those things at the same time. Yeah, I agree with everything that you've said, Barbara. I do think that there are particular challenges to internationalism compared to, if I was to compare it to the 60s and 70s, and one of the biggest is the Cold War. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot over the past three or four years, because I really, I'm always interested in kind of the history of generation as it relates to activism, because in many ways I came of age in the 1980s, and so the struggles with Central American solidarity were so central and also the ANC in South Africa and the anti-apartheid movement. But also I was really uh, nurtured by a generation of women organizers who were coming out of Grenada and Jamaica and coming out of the Caribbean. And so there was a way in which there was a connection that was seen as a, a line of connection to the possibilities of even state socialist victories in a way post-1989. It's more difficult. So I think that in general, the internationalist piece of of all forms of organizing in the U.S. has shrunk from what I experienced in my youth, actually, in the 80s and the 90s. And part of that, I'll say from my own point of view, has to do with the defeat of the anti-war movements. I think that the when we had the second Gulf War in 2003 with mass mobilization, I was at Berkeley at the time with a million people coming out several times in order to try to prevent the second Iraq war. So the U.S.'s imperial wars of the last 20 years are the context in which I think have, I hate to say this, but sometimes, and we see this of course in the Democratic Party and the left, if we were gonna compare it with say the even the left of the Democratic Party in the 1970s, that there's been such a, a difficulty in fighting the militarism of the U.S. state. And so even, you know, the recent fight that was had in Democratic Socialists of America, which was centered on Palestine, but I think that the role of the international in all of American politics, unfortunately, has shrunk. And that has to do with, I think that the anti-imperial frame in the 60s and 70s is so important, and it was so foundational to the party. And there are ways in which I think the frame of anti-imperialism now is it's not, I'd say it's a range of movements. Um, 
I think we're trying to figure out how to strengthen it and to use it at a time when just the enormous power of the military industrial complex, the use of private contractors, the scale of our continuous wars in the Middle East that are being fought by poor and working class people. So I would put myself within that discussion. How do we strengthen these uh, anti-imperialism inside the United States? Because I think we really need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, you, you've spoken to this a little bit already. Um but, you know, this question of optimism in this moment, I just right before earlier today, actually, I listened to um, an interview with uh, G. Omar and Mariam Kaba on um, The Dig, uh, which uh, was about the question of abolition and the tension. And, and it ended up talking a lot about, which is something I think a lot about, is how we understand the state today. Uh, and, and there are tendencies within the movement, anti-statist and anarchist uh, tendencies that argue, you know, it's not about state power, it's about abolishing the state. Uh, and other forces are saying, we're demanding things of the state and, and, and we're demanding resources that the state has and so forth. And certainly getting people elected means that they're gonna be, the agencies of the state will be implementing some of the legislation if they get progressive legislation through. So I don't, this is a big question. I don't know if you have thoughts about it, but um, in terms of us understanding scenarios for change, you know, you and I both were um, supporters of Bernie Sanders in the last election with a little internal struggle going on around race, which I I would say little is probably an understatement, but um, uh, so, so obviously, you know, you see that as, as one important flank of struggle, but any thoughts about this question of the state um, and how we understand it? And and I'm thinking of it because we're talking about, you know, you're talking about imperialism and empire and U.S. empire is is changing, let's just say. So I don't know if that's too big of a question to ask at the end of our conversation or we just want to ponder it for next time, but I thought I would throw it out there because it was on my mind. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. This is actually the question I spend a lot of time thinking about. All oh, the time good. Right now. I'm gonna... And it relates to what I was saying about the Cold War, mm-hmm. because I do. I also came from a generation of people who were people who'd been involved in battles over the state. And certainly the Panthers were, too. I've had this discussion with many people who see the Panthers essentially as uh, simply an anti-statist formation, as anarchists. Mm-hmm. No, they were a Marxist-Leninist party with a central committee. They modeled themselves after forms of state socialism. We can all talk about the problems with state socialism. I think many of us know them all too well. But this was a different generation of radicalism. And I think in some ways, even though I'm at the tail end of that generation, I still identify with it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking even in terms of this relates to how to have hope. Because I am genuinely worried about racial fascism in the United States and about even the integrity of our of our flawed and limited liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. There are things worse than our flawed and limited liberal democracy. And I think it's we're very likely on that trajectory. Mm-hmm. I saw Emmanuel Wallerstein give a talk for the left forum about 15 years ago. And as always, he was incredibly eloquent, but he essentially made this gesture to say, you know, perhaps we'll see the continuation of the current arrangements we have, or we will see something new. Mm. And I do think, unfortunately, we're moving towards a kind of system. It's not only inside the United States in which 
democracy, and there are different views of how people understand democracy. Do they understand it as simply the reflexive counterpart to capitalism, or do they see it as concessions that were wrung from organizing from mm-hmm. the state to saying, we expect these things? And it's not only through voting. This, I'd say this is one of the most important things. There are ways to wring things from the state that are not only electoral politics. I personally think voting is extremely important. As a Philly activist said, I've been saying it ever since, she sees voting as a form of harm reduction. And exactly that spirit, it's recognizing also the harms of the United States in relationship to its own people and the rest of the world. I do feel we have a responsibility for that. I think it's very important. It's important in all countries, but given the United States' scale of its military machine, its repression, and its history as the great anti-communist hegemon, and sponsors of violence. I personally think that we have a responsibility to engage politically on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. I vote, go vote. You know, it takes me usually an hour or so. Right now I vote in my own building, but then I spend the rest of my time doing all kinds of things. So there's, I think there's that piece. Yeah. But what I've been thinking about lately of working on my book on the war on drugs is reading the literature on the Latin American war on drugs and thinking about how to understand the United States through that lens and our state. Mm-hmm. And it's allowed me to think about the real goals of the war on drugs, which were really not about eliminating consumption of drugs, but in many ways expanding, providing a state building project at a time of real denial, you know, of neoliberal cutting back and anti-government rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I think so there's that. But I think one of the challenges right now is that there were real historical tensions between anarchism and socialism. And you said this. What? I said still are. You said they still are. Mm -hmm. You said this very eloquently in the Amazing Portal Project, which maybe we can uh, talk about for a little bit. But I think that whether it was the general strikes in Brazil in the 1980s, you know, this is what launched the career of Lula da Silva. You know, there are ways to engage the state that are not only limited to voting, although I think voting as harm reduction is important. And the place that makes me nervous is I do think there's a very strong anarchist um, ethos, abolish the police, abolish public education and abolish. It's these institutions that have carceral components to them. And some of them absolutely need to be abolished. Mm -hmm. Public education is a site of harm, but it is also a set of resources. And so Mm -hmm. emphasizing that both and and transformation, I think is really important. And I'll just add that thinking about where we are in the political economy of the US today compared to the 1980s has a lot to do with how the tax structure was changed. How we ended up with so many billionaires that are involved in all these destructive projects. A lot of that was the transformation of the tax code in the Reagan era. So in thinking about the political economy piece, I do think to have a real counterbalance with enormous wealth and corporate power, I think that you have to engage the state. I'm involved in the labor union. Very important. And I am deeply worried about the death of public education. We are really seeing it dismantled. I'll just end, this is not hopeful, but I'll end by saying, having grown up in Erie, Pennsylvania, about five years ago, friends told me that they were going to shut down all of the high schools in Erie and that they were going to hire private contractors. People could either go to the schools in the county or they could have lessons online. 
Mm -hmm. This is already happening in poor and working class communities, the selling off of the school buildings and the stripping of some of the poor infrastructure. So I think we need to have some hard conversations about those tensions between anarchism and socialism. And I really am deeply wedded to an abolitionist socialist lens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a way in which to view um, some of the anarchist impulses are really pleas for greater democracy, understanding the sort of democratic centralist formations in the left were more centralist than democratic, but then not really um, offering a sort of system of organization, which the state or whatever we call it, some form of governance provides through which you implement that which is one, right? Um, because really we are asking for uh, the, the expansion of the public, the public square, public institutions, that, and the institutions set up to provide resources are state agencies. Now, how are those transformed uh, into really truly democratic institutions um, is a large question, but at the moment, you know, that mantra, you know, we struggle inside, outside and against the state, I think is really important. I'll close on this note as a little bit of a plug for um, a project that I've been very involved in, which is called the Portal Project, as you know, and I've really been um, so appreciative of your role in it and taking it seriously. It's a community of scholars, activists, and artists trying to wrestle with some of the questions we've been wrestling with in this conversation and that you wrestle with in the book. And really it's grasping for some optimism in dark times. Uh, But I'm just wondering, sort of in the spirit of the Portal Project, and again, it's borrowed from a quote from Arundhati Roy about the pandemic as portal, and how do we kind of get to the other side transformed? How do we use the opportunity of crisis to to move toward a just transition in, in institutions and the society as a whole? And so I'm just wondering if there's some kernels of optimism that you uh, have, uh, you know, have found in your research and your practice, you know, in looking at the world that we uh, inhabit, that we can hang on to uh, as we close out the conversation. I think that, and Barbara, you've embodied this with your practice about figuring out ways to quilt and knit together people, organizations, movements, and tendencies. I think we need this and we need more of it. And I think that one of the challenges we face is that many of the platforms that we've taken for granted are being defunded. So I was thinking about both labor unions and uh, schools that, you know, things that were the historical platforms for the left, but this coming together and knitting together different places of connection and organization across region and across job category, I think is important. One of the things I'm really excited about is of course the victory against Amazon. Yes, of course, has been won. The initial salvos have been won, but it may end up being a long legal battle. So I think in terms of the things that give me hope is coming together with people. I'd say that we are generally like-minded, but we also have real differences and figuring out how to have non-instrumental relationships Mm. that are based on a deeper set of connections and forces. I think that the capitalist piece that's really destructive is that in various ways, 
this instrumentalization of people's relationships to each other is something that we are fighting. And I think in order to build real political community, there have to be relationships that are based on uh, shared struggle and equity. And I think that in the organizing spaces that I participated in, Portal Project and others that you've created, this is the real work of how you put movements together. Yeah. So th- those things give me hope. And also young people give me hope. I'm, I think that I'm hoping that we will see more and deeper organizing and figuring out very grounded ways to do anti-capitalist work, especially around housing. I think housing is our, one of our very biggest crises right now. Absolutely. So thinking about, you know, in order to wage proper anti-capitalist struggle, I think it has to be waged in very specific and concrete ways around specific things, be it housing, education, or jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you hold up groups like BYP 100 and the Dream Defenders are, you know, doing great work and, and you know, doing work around debt. The Debt Collective uh, is another one. The Dissenters, uh, anti-imperialist, uh, anti-war group led by young people of color. So all of these are sources of optimism. Um, even if we have pessimism of the intellect, we still have optimism and we still have fight. Thank you for this book, Donna. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, and thank you for including me in this conversation. I hope people buy the book. And I also want to just give a nod to Haymarket. Um, you know, they are producing some amazing books, um, taking radical authors seriously and creating, you know, finding audience for, for, for these works that will make a difference in our movement. So thank you. And, uh, that's it. I think. Thank you so much, Barbara. And a big thank you to Sean, to Anthony and to Haymarket. who have just been an amazing author centered press. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.